Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, in this new episode of Investor Series, I sat down with Xavier Saras, founding partner at 4P Capital, an early stage impact venture capital fund that invests in environmental and social resiliency, a term Xavier defined as carbon reduction and circular economy models, along with sustainability education and mental well-being models. Xavier's journey started at 17 when he founded his own marketing agency. 30 years later, after successfully building diverse marketing and sales agencies, he was already an angel investor when he decided to make a pivot and move away from helping companies to sell things we don't need and invest in companies solving our most pressing issues. Preparing for this podcast, Xavier and I agreed to discuss the issue of single-use plastics. So I asked him, what is the problem? What are the main technological solutions existing today? And where should you, the listener, look to find out about common solutions? We then took a deep dive into the market by looking at regulation and the innovations and the market gap that got Xavier excited and led him to found for people. In the second part of the show, Xavier let us in on what the 4P stands for and how it reflects on what kind of founders they are looking for. He then tells us exactly what creative goal he has set for himself to ensure good work-life balance and what he use to stay on top of that. Xavier, welcome to the show. Hi, Xavier. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are looking at with 4P Capital, which support and invest in digital technology companies, which are building a world that is environmentally and socially more resilient. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Guillaume. It's great to be here. 
So that's the tradition of the show. Before we start, can you uh, please give us a 30-second introduction about uh, 4P Capital? Great, I will do it. So 4P Capital is an early-stage impact venture capital fund that invests in pre-seed and seed rounds with tickets ranging 250K to 1.5 million in what we call resilience. So that's environmental resilience that comprises carbon reduction and circular economy models and social resilience, which comprises sustainability, education, and mental well-being models. So let's start from the, from the top. Can you tell us a bit more about your personal story, background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you do besides, you know, working and supporting and investing in, uh, in founders? What makes you feel inspired or like your best self, as I always ask? Who is Xavier? <laughs> so I guess... Starting on a personal level, what really inspires me is, is my family, as cliche as this might sound. But, you know, I have two boys that are seven years and four years old, and they challenge me every day. They show me their reality every day, and they give me a mirror of being a father, but also a human being. And uh, so does my wife, uh, which I love very much. And uh, they drive me every day to be the best version of myself. I don't always succeed, I must admit. I'm a human being, but um, they are the key driver to what I do. So tell us a bit more about your uh, work and life experience prior uh, for Peak Capital. I mean, if you could recall like maybe one or two uh, pieces of uh, experience during that journey uh, that in a way sure. gave you an edge to uh, to start a firm. Sure. Um, I guess I'm not a typical VC person because I didn't start my career in this field and I wasn't an investment banker before and I didn't have the luck to be a a principal or a partner at a large, large VC firm. I I started my career at the age of 17 when I started my first marketing agency and uh, went on for now close to 30 years uh, doing that and uh, built diverse marketing strategy and sales marketing agencies, etc. Had a stint in dot-com in 2007 when we founded a luxury travel company online that went live in June 2008. So timing-wise, just eight weeks before the financial crisis. Um, we then did to that what is today called pivoting. Back in the days, it was save your butt. And we transformed it back into a, a well-running agency, which we then scaled to 200 people in size and sold in 2017 to a large international agency group. And during that time between 2008 and 2017, I was severely frustrated by the non-scalability of a service model uh, and by the kind of senselessness of an agency business model and started investing as an angel into tech companies. And during that time, I realized that what I had learned to do sales and marketing is a key lever to early stage investing because a lot of the teams develop this muscle of structured sales and marketing too late in the journey. They do that post series A or close to the series A, but they should do it way earlier to you know, shorten their product market fit, fit cycles to short their sales cycles, gain traction earlier, et cetera, and thereby raise their valuations. So with that in mind, um, I founded the corporate venture capital vehicle of the agency group I had sold to with the hope of getting out of the agency model. Did that for about a year. Um, and as with a lot of the CBCs, you then hear from the shareholders, hey, this is great and it's so innovative, but it's not producing short-term cash flow. It's only producing long-term investing gains. Can you please go back and buy up businesses for us and restructure them and win some pitches and be an agency leader again? And uh, I was very clear uh, that I didn't want to do that. 
And in all honesty, I attended a Tony Robbins seminar in the June of 2019, where I've taken the decision that I am getting out of the agency life, for sure. I had given myself one and a half years to do that. Only four months later, the decision came and I uh, got out of the agency. And uh, that's how basically I ended up uh, an angel investor uh, had, that has sold his agency that has a year of experience in building a corporate venture fund and a bit of a midlife crisis because I was in my mid forties. And um, then I looked my boys in the eyes and they were four and one back then. And I realized, hey, Xavier, you now spent close to 30 years helping Pringles sell more chips and BMW more cars and Wella more shampoo bottles. And we're in the, in the heart of an environmental and social crisis that's really like getting steeper and steeper every day. Are you, what are you going to do to contribute to the solutions? You're not going to tell your boys in 30 years time that you just watched and continued selling fast moving consumer goods the world doesn't need. And I realized I, I really love investing. I love working with entrepreneurs. I am an entrepreneur. I've been it basically all my life. And there's nothing that I find more empowering and more ener energy giving than working with driven entrepreneurs. I love investing. And I do believe still very strongly in the power of sales and marketing, especially in the startup environment and even more so in the impact field. And, you know, selling an agency is not exiting a, a tech uh, unicorn or a tech decacorn. It's, it's profitable, but it's not huge amounts. So I decided that I need to leverage as much cash as I can to contribute to the transformation. And that's where in that pivot to purpose moment came the decision to build an impact asset manager, which then became to be 4P Capital. So let's take a, a zoom out. I mean, we're speaking about uh, preparing this uh, this interview and uh, we like in the show kind of like understand like a, a sector of a part of the industry of this, uh, you know, climate tech, um, you know, I would say like a big uh, umbrella uh, and look at one specific, uh, you know, problematic here. Uh, and together we decided to, uh, you know, take a step back and, and look at the state of alternative, um, you know, single use uh, plastic uh, today or SUP yeah. uh, and the potential to you know to contribute to the, the fight against uh, climate change so maybe you can start by giving us like uh, and the audience uh, your overview of the uh, traditional single-use plastic landscape i mean what are the different type of sup existing maybe their composition why are they harmful to the environment and and maybe you can share you know, some data points uh, in terms of like quantity produce and, and quantity that's represented in terms of uh, GSG and the problematic there. So really to kind of like try to understand this overall context prior to dive into uh, the alternative uh, that uh, are emerging today. Of course. Um, and thank you for preparing me for this call a little bit. So I have, I have some notes with me that uh, can help guide us through this discussion. Um, let's start. Super easy. How old are you, Guillaume? I am 40. I just turned 40 uh, back in September, so six months ago. Right? Well, happy, yeah, happy belated. I think I said that before, happy belated birthday. <laughs> so we're not 40. So when we were kids and we went to go have fast food and we had, you know, a sausage and some fries and we wanted to have some ketchup and some mayonnaise with it. Usually what you get is a little small bag called a sachet, which you rip open and then you squeeze it and then there's tomato ketchup coming out or mayonnaise coming out. I think this, the sachet is probably the best example of absolutely senseless 
single-use plastic that we're using currently, but that has become such a habit in human consumption that we cannot think it away. And I just want to start a little bit philosophically. Plastic is not harmful per se. Plastic is a great substance. Plastic is, a, is an amazing substance because it helps us um, build, construct, safeguard in a very, very good way a lot of the products and the construction that we need to do. The problem lies more in the use of those plastics and in the way that we recycle or are able to, um, let's say, dispose of them. And that's exactly why we're now talking about single-use plastics, which are the ones that we just use once. And the sachet is the perfect example of that, because once it's ripped open, you've squeezed the ketchup out, you throw it away. And where does it land? In landfills, where it takes over a thousand years to disintegrate. So it just does not disappear. The great property about plastic, it disintegrates very hardly. But that's also the danger with the single-use plastics. To give you a bit of a, of a reference, the entire global single-use plastic market was sized at 22 billion US dollars in 2021. So it is a fairly large market. It's growing with around about 6% still annually. It's actually um, in the US, the fastest growing market and the largest market is, is the APAC region. The plastics in total are 3.8% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a quite large portion of that. However, and that's probably the bigger problem, with the increased plastic demand that we have, with our rising consumption patterns, this could make up 15%, 15.15% of the global greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, if that was permissible and we stay under the 1.5 degree warming, which already we know is probably not going to be able to be held. However, you can see how this problem is not getting smaller. It's actually quintupling at the moment with regards to its GHG exposure. Another, I think, frightening figure, maybe I'll say, I'll have you guess it. How, how many plastic bags do you think are produced worldwide yearly? It's definitely in the billion. Um, I don't know if it's reaching the trillion, <laughs> but probably like I would say uh, 600 billion, or maybe I'm guessing yeah. too high. You're guessing too low. Take that times nine because it's five trillion plastic bags that get produced worldwide. Okay, yeah, that's so five thousand billion. Five thousand billion bags that take a thousand years to disintegrate each. In Europe, another guess you can take: how many deodorants are thrown away every day? Every day. It's a. Uh, if you take European's population, you think that probably they are like uh, using uh, one every month, month and a half. So around like 15 million. Yeah, again, times four, it's 60 million. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting bad at this uh, guessing. Every, <laughs> so on average, every French person is throwing away a deodorant every day just to put that into perspective, right? Yeah. And we have alternatives. I'm not sure what type of deodorant you use, but we take baking soda and put it under our armpits and it works just as well. And we keep it in containers, right? So there are alternatives on the market already. The problem is the human being that doesn't change the habits, right? We have to change our consumption patterns to get out of this cycle. But we also, of course, need alternative materials, which we're gonna be talking about a little later. 
But I think the key to the problem is really the way that we consume and the way that we, um, of, of course, also produce and the way that we change these systems. But the driving force in all of this is the consumer that just needs to change the habits so that companies are forced to change the way they produce their products and deliver their products. I think another kind of frightening or at least interesting statistic is the recycling of uh, plastics. Less than 9% of all plastics get recycled. So we have 91% that remain unrecycled and that do not disintegrate and are just out there and are filling everything, especially as we, I think, all know by now the oceans. We are about to have more plastic in the oceans than fish in terms of numbers. So there's more numbers of plastic, pieces of plastic flying around in the oceans than we actually have fish in the ocean. And I think that's also a quite, let's say, alarming figure. All of us are composed to almost 1% by now in our bodies of plastic because of all the microplastic that we breathe in every day, that we consume through the food that we consume, that just happens to be in our systems. So we are plastifying not only the planet, we're plastic, plastifying human beings. Yeah, and you know that's that's I think uh, probably a, a good overview um, in terms of the in terms of the sector. Um, of course, we can move on and move on, but I I don't know if you want to move on into policy and regulation and, and these types of things, or if you just want me to go on. Uh, I think pr prior to, uh, to to move on into more like the alternative side uh, and what are emerging there, uh, like just to get uh, maybe a glimpse of your own overview in terms of like how is the, the, the market organized? I mean, like what are the, the producers of those uh, single-use plastics? Is it like a fragmented market? Is it like a consolidated market? Why are they localized more in, uh, you know, in Asia or like uh, Europe or, 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 I mean, domestically in the in the U.S.? Uh, and what are the maybe the economical like economic forces behind it to uh, that in a way uh, help them to hold uh, and stand uh, as they are and not like move towards a uh, I would say like a, a cleaner uh, you know plastic world I would say yeah <clears throat> so um, again before I do that just a quick reference for everybody on the podcast. You guys might want to check out a plastic planet, um, which is an uh, is an initiative launched by Sean Sutherland, who's also on our expert tribe in the UK. And there's an adjacent website to it called plasticfree.com. And a plastic planet is a movement um, based out of the UK to really initiate these this plastic transformation. And it's a great resource to find a lot of information around uh, the plastic market, the plastic drivers, etc. And plasticfree.com is a platform where all of the product designers in the world are unified on a on a website to propose alternative products based on different forms of and alternative forms of plastic. So that's a it's a great resource to kind of look at. Um, now, in terms of the market and how it's structured, plastic is a widely used and single use plastic is a widely used material, right? So it's it's basically in every industry. Whether you look at car manufacturers, whether you look at uh, the cosmetics industry, whether you look at the food industry. It's 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 almost everywhere in construction, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it's it's a material that can be found kind of anywhere and everywhere. And therefore the production lines are also structured accordingly. So it's a it's a it's a huge industry in total. Um and I don't I wouldn't see there's a geographical, oh, I wouldn't say there's a geographical kind of bias to this. Clearly, a lot of Initial producers are based in Asia, and that's where a lot of the uh, plastic comes from. 
However, if you look at contract manufacturers in the cosmetics industry, that's also based in Europe. It's also based in Eastern Europe. Uh, it's it's based in, in South America. Plastic is a worldwide phenomenon and there is no clear, um, let's say geographical way to structure it and, and, and halt it. And that's also one of the reasons why these systems cannot be changed overnight, right? So you have different regulations taking place. The EU is, I think, a bit of a front runner in putting hard legislation in uh, with the supply chain law, with uh, all of our other acts that have been put into the put into action, also with taxes coming up on PET bottles, etc. So all of these things in Europe are really like uh, coming coming in more strongly. Uh, but the fact that everything is spread out so widely is also not helping to drive uh, these specific corporations in one direction. Um, so that's the one thing that's holding us back, that we don't have a global legislation that is aligned and on the same structures. The second piece is that, you know, the incentives are not set in the right way yet. So if you speak to C-level corporates, um, let's say at a large drinks manufacturer, I'm not calling out names here, yeah? But when you your business model is about putting sugar and water together, packing it in plastic and sending it around the world, then clearly, and you're, and you're driven by shareholder value and shareholder returns, and that's your incentive scheme, that's how you get paid your bonus, then you will drive that for the next years to come. I'm not saying that every of these sea levels is evil and has no sense for sustainability, but the incentive scheme is not set in the right way. And I'm, I'm a huge believer in capitalist forces, and I'm sure we're going to speak about that a little later with regards to our fund, but I think capitalist forces can drive change, and therefore the capitalist incentive schemes need to be set in a way that it's A, harmful to leaders not to transform, and B, it's rewarding to actually transform because they're set, they've set their incentive schemes in the right way. But by the same token, Guillaume, I think, you know, it's not easy to transform these systems either because putting soft drinks into glass is not the solution. That's actually more GHG emission than it would be to, um, to actually keep it in plastic bottles, right? In this case, we just need to make it recycling and move away from the single-use type of stuff, right? But I'm not sure if you know, but if a glass bottle has like the, uh, has five times the CO2 emissions um, than, than a plastic bottle, right? So it's not the solution to transform that. We need to find different ways of consumption. Um, we are, I made an investment, which is also warehoused for the, uh, for the fund into a company that is basically um, replacing soft drinks in bottles because it's developed a little tablet that you can, they call it plink into a glass of water that will have the same uh, feeling, fuzzy feeling, buzzy feeling, nice taste than a soft drink with less sugar, more, um, more qualities to, to hydrate you and less salts, etc. But it's transported in a little box like this for 15 drinks, right? You can just order it online, you get it in your post, post mail, you put it into a glass of water, that's done. So I think the large drinks manufacturers, for example, need to move into a different form of how they produce their product, how they deliver their product, in order to foster this change. But when you are under pressure of providing shareholder return and also have responsibility for thousands of employees, restructuring these companies is not easy, clearly. But we all need to come to the same conclusion, Guillaume, 
we are in a crisis, whether we want to face that or not, and whether we like it or not. And being in a crisis means we need to take strong and hard and sometimes harsh measures of transformation. Um, and, and just to close that off, that section, you know, when, when ChatGPT now came out, everybody's frightened about their job changes, et cetera. Everybody's using ChatGPT, trying to get ahead of it, trying to get an AI expert, et cetera. We're doing it because it's there. But we've known for ages that AI is coming, but we haven't transformed the way we work. Now AI is there and all of a sudden we're all in panic. And the same goes with this sort of stuff. We need to understand this is coming, this is here. We need to transform harshly now. And I think this is a good segue to uh, to, to move on to the, the alternative. I mean, we know that the crisis is there. Uh, we start to feel it. Uh, and uh, as you know, as well as like uh, humans and, you know, we'll see in the future with uh, AI replacing the creativity of humans, but uh, in terms of crisis uh, and especially entrepreneurs are able to build and find uh, opportunities and alternatives uh, to those uh, those problems. So let's jump into the uh, the alternative of uh, single-use plastic that uh, are existing today. I mean, maybe you can give to the, the audience like, uh, uh, some uh, maybe one, two or three uh, alternatives that you, you have seen uh, that you might have invested or not uh, that uh, you think are, uh, you know, very uh, promising uh, in terms of like really solving uh, solving the, the this issue of uh, that you uh, nicely framed uh, prior to that. Yeah, I'd love to. So uh, there's different ways to, to tackle this thing, right? So there is the material transformation so that we use different materials and there is consumption transformation where we just change the way we act upon our consumption let me try to start with the latest so we are invested in a company called Fercado, um, which is based in berlin and, and was founded by a great climate activist from belgium evolena and her dear cto ali and what they have started is an e-commerce application that automatically gives you alternatives to buying the new product. So if you search online for the newest iPhone, it will give you all the different refurbished alternatives of an iPhone that has the similar qualities to what you were looking for, of course, also at a lower price. And it incentivizes you right away to choose that alternative at the moment of purchase. Clearly, me coming from a marketing and sales background, I love this because it's interrupting your customer journey on your way to deciding for the product and tells you, I'm going to buy an alternative right here, right? And this won't be repackaged in a plastic packaging. It won't be um, embellished in that way. It will just be that pure referred product that will avoid you using um, new materials to, to build that, that new product. I think those kinds of models are great and we need more of those to change the way that we consume. Um, I um, And I strongly encourage any founder to move into the space because it's still humongously uh, underserved and there are many, many opportunities. The other piece is creating alternative materials at scale for industrial single-use plastic applications. And there we're invested in a company called 1.5, which was founded by um, some of Infarm's ex-team and um, 1.5 basically has a platform that scans all of the IP that's available around alternative plastics. They started with algae-based products, and algae is one of those materials that is very promising because it kind of brings the same properties uh, to plastic. And 
they um, have used the scanning of the IP, which is AI based as well, and matched that with the specifications of industrial applications. So they'll look for FMCG applications, for example, the single use sachets where they're currently working on and are able to then replace these single use sachets by providing the IP to the contract manufacturer that will then produce the alternative material to that. That's a great way of tackling the problem. Another amazing company that we did not get to invest into because they were just too far for us from their, from their stage, but they're still an amazing company is called Matter, based in the UK. And they have developed a filter that they put in washing machines. Um, and that filter in washing machines filters out all the microplastic that is generated in the washing machine, collects those microplastics and creates new products from this recycled microplastic that is collected. And that can be done in individual washing machines, so privately owned washing machines, where the manufacturers of the washing machines are now integrating this technology. And it can be done in, let's say, industrial scale um, washing machines, i.e. filtration systems, where you know chemical companies and production companies and industrial companies can filter out all the microplastics out of their production processes before it reaches the wastewater. So that's an amazing way to reduce the plastics waste that we cannot avoid. And the fourth example would be a company that we also get to invest into and are currently in the process of investing into called Cambrium. It's an AI company that comes out of the Marantix lab in, uh, in Berlin. And these guys are, I didn't even know that existed before, uh, um, synthetic biology and computer science PhDs. So they com combine computer science and synthetic biology and they use AI to find different forms of protein that can then be replacing plastics in different applications. And that can be uh, the replacement of collagen in, in cosmetics or the entire change of plastic coverings that can be tra transformed by using synthetic materials that are not plastic-based, but are, are fully biodegradable when they land on landfills and therefore create a bit, much better life cycle um, of, of all this material. And this is only four of many solutions that we're looking at at the moment, but you can see the different angles that you can take to get there. If you take a, a zoom out of, uh, I mean, and thanks for sharing those four examples and uh, there's uh, many others that uh, we've seen passing through as well. Uh, where I mean, how do you compare like the economics of like the actual solution today and the stage of development versus the uh, versus the, the traditional single-use plastics? I mean, are we? Uh, what is the green premium uh, that we still need to pay to go uh, to 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 really uh, compete against uh, uh, the traditional single-use plastic? Do you see like a, a rapid change, um, or are we still far behind and we still need? Uh, you know, uh, years of like uh, development or uh, scale uh, to really like reduce this uh, this uh, production cost. Uh, I mean, what is realistic here? I mean, uh, what is the timeline that you think that uh, could be uh, could be achieved? That's a it's a tough question, right? Uh, looking into the glass bowl, but um, our hopes that that we can reach this within the next five to 10 years. Um, some of the companies that we're looking at and that, that we're working with are on a great path to getting this done in the next five years, but they've been also working on it for the last three. So um, they've had a bit of a, of a headwind uh, or tailwind better say. Um, the problem right now, 
still is that, you know, it's not just the production cost that needs to be brought down. It's also that we just need to impose taxes on the other side uh, of the industry. So plastic is a material that is cheap to produce, extremely cheap to produce. We need to set an additional tax on plastic so that the incentive, again, to use alternatives is very clear because it becomes a price parity as we're bringing down the price and production cost and the scale of, of that piece. The evolution of plastic is now, what, 80, 90, almost 100 years old. So clearly, we've brought down the production cost of that. The evolution of the new forms of materials that we now have is so nascent and so recent that that cannot catch up fast enough. And we, of course, we can use exponential technologies to drive this as fast as possible. And that's also one of the key reasons why VCs are entering in this space, because we just need to drive this innovation very fast and everybody's doing it. But I believe that we just need to act from both sides. And I think one good change is, for example, the policy change um, imposed by, by the EU, right, that uh, will then have uh, tax on PET bottles, for example. And we just enlarge um, this, this sort of mechanism so that the incentive schemes are right. Do you see, and speaking about, I think it's a good segue uh, to, to go to my next question. Do, do you see like a difference between uh, the European market versus the US and, and China and the rest of the world in terms of like, um, you know, incentive and, and regulation tailwind, but also like in terms of like uh, this willingness to innovate uh, and have like a, a proper, uh, I would say like a, a favorable uh, environment that really like uh, sparkle this innovation to uh, to, to, to scale uh, that, uh, that market in itself? Unfortunately, I have to see differences. Um, some of our LPs just came back from South by Southwest in Texas, um, and they were reporting me that they were really astonished that climate and sustainability and these topics were not covered at South by Southwest at all. So South by Southwest was talking about quantum computing, about AI, and these types of things, but they didn't cover anything about sustainability and use the use of exponential technology to bring about sustainability, which kind of shows that in the US mindset, it hasn't dropped, it's not there. Yes, of course, the Biden administration is, is driving some of these initiatives and is, I would say, complying to overall requests by the worldwide community, but the American population and the American industry have not arrived there yet at all, except special states, for example, California. But the cultural adaptation has not been done. I don't see them move out of combustion engines by 2030 either, right? So simply because they still have such an abundance of energy that green energy is not on their, on their agenda. Again, the incentive schemes are wrong. If you look at Asia, namely China, I guess, when you're leading a billion population that is spread over all forms of social poverty or abundance and wealth, of course, you also have other problems to cover. And the industrial transformation there is so hard to tackle that clearly it's going to take longer to transform. And again, pressure hasn't, hasn't arrived, right? So, I mean, Europe has been greener than every other continent uh, for a long time. All these green initiatives have started basically in, in, in Europe. Um, and I feel that culturally, we have such a huge difference in how we respond to these things that it's going to take longer in these countries unless 
we actually have effects of the climate crisis taking place there more heavily. Now, unfortunately, we already know that potentially not the largest uh, impediments on our climate will have the largest um, consequences. So and that has been discussed at the COP and at the WEF, et cetera, right? So we're, we're trying to find worldwide solutions to impose basically um, uh, charges on their on the impediments they produce. But China, I think, if I remember correctly, has refused to participate in the global fund in this, et cetera, right? So we're, we're just not there yet. And then it's, it's almost like war, like to be honest, yeah? We just need to have diplomatic ways to, to, to end the war. And we need to continue, continue, continue getting on their nerves and, 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 and squeeze their balls, if you allow me to say it, <laughs> or squeeze whatever is necessary <laughs> to, to really put pressure. And the, the pressure just needs to continue. We just need to get on their nerves all the time to, to get them to change. So to close this uh, this section before uh, jumping into uh, into 4P Capital, I mean, what are the constraints in terms of like circularity and recycling, uh, you know, processing in place regarding single-use plastic uh, alternatives or, you know, what developing those new alternatives? Uh, often we hear some controversy about, you know, the positive impact or the net positive impact uh, of some of those uh, SUP alternatives. I mean, do you see a real environmental like impact in terms of GSG reduction, uh, land and resource allocation uh, along the life cycle uh, of those ones? And uh, or there's still like a lot of progress to be uh, to be done? Well, clearly there still is a lot of progress to be done, right? We're just at the beginning of, of driving this industry. Um, we need to get rid of single-use plastic, full stop. There is no there is no alternative. We cannot continue using single-use plastic because otherwise we're just going to plastify ourselves and the, and the planet. So, um, so that's clear. Do we need to improve recycling methodologies, um, waste methodologies? Yes, of course we do. We need to change the way that this is processed. We need to disincentivize sending our crap to... Uh, other countries for them to put it in landfills just because it's not happening here it doesn't mean that it's not happening elsewhere right so we need to reinvent the entirety of how plastic is consumed wasted and collected and how that waste is then treated because otherwise we will not be able to tackle this problem um, and we need to as fast as we can get rid of single-use plastic um, in order to um, to, to, to eliminate it, basically. In terms of life cycle and full life cycle, it cannot be done by replacing it through steel or aluminum or glass. We need to replace it in the compound itself. So either we find a different way of using the specific product that is basically in a circular type of model and has a packaging that can be reused all the time, which means we need to change the way that consumption patterns are taking place, distribution patterns are taking place, et cetera, and how the delivery is being done. Or we can find a way to replace the packaging by a completely biodegradable solution, which is for one of the examples I gave you. And I believe that that can be done fairly quickly and has a much, much better life cycle in total and end of life value also with regards to GHG, um, especially looking at then also methane and all these other gases next to carbon, right? So that's the other problem we need to tackle. 
but um, the solutions that we have seen to date uh, make us very optimistic about the future. So let's go into the specific of uh, 4P Capital. I mean, can you, and you already uncovered a little bit, but like the, the story, the genesis, like the initial gap that you uh, you saw uh, that led to the thesis uh, behind 4P. Yeah. So I would say that we are in the almost second generation of, of, of impact funds that, that are arising. And a lot of people that we speak to say, so you're a climate fund. Well, we're kind of a climate fund, but we're not just a climate fund. So you're an ESG fund. No, we're definitely not an ESG fund, right? So one of the key gaps that we saw in the market is that people are still very undereducated as to what is the difference between being ESG compliant, uh, creating impact, uh, creating impact with return uh, and producing purpose, right? So <laughs> uh, we found a gap in this impact venture capital space, which says we can produce environmental and social impact but we can also deliver high-end returns in fields where technological innovation needs to be accelerated very, very fast in markets that are growing at double-digit KGARs. And therefore, uh, when you know the gap that exists in private funding to meet the UN SDGs, it's a gap of 4 trillion US dollars per annum in the private markets alone. You cannot build enough asset managers out there to channel this money into the right solutions. Therefore, the gap is humongous, and that's why we also chose this gap. More specifically around our thesis, we did want to have a broader thesis a little bit. We did not want just to focus on climate tech as such, because we believe there needs to be a more, um, let's say, 360-degree view. When you look at the social resilience pieces that we invest in, the underlying thought is that we need to transform as human beings to tackle the challenges of the next 30 years. We need to be educated differently. We need to be educated differently in corporates. So we need to learn sustainability very, very fast in order to transform these processes that we were just talking about, in order to have the right incentive schemes, in order to change the supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. But we also need to be educated differently in school and in academia to be ready for these markets. What we learn today in school doesn't make kids ready for the challenges of the next 30 years, especially given the technological transformation that we're experiencing on other fronts, AI, GPT, et cetera, yeah? or chat GPT. Um, so that's the one piece in, in our social resilience. The other is that every fourth person currently is suffering from mental health problems. How can we fix the issues the planet has in these large crises crises if if we are wrong, if we're not okay, corporates are experiencing 40% of productivity decline because of mental health problems in their in their inter enterprises. And that's because the crisis weighs so heavily on them. COVID, war in Russia, uh, general overwhelm because of technological transformation, et cetera, et cetera. All these things produce anxiety in companies. And if you're anxious, you cannot work to your best. So we need to transform humans. And the other piece then is our commitment in environmental resilience to really, yes, reduce GHGs and also, yes, create a circular economy because we feel those are the two biggest drivers that can help mitigate the climate crisis. And we call it resilience because we believe in an optimistic view on this. We believe we need to foster, let's say, preparatory resilience right now. We need to mitigate the risks that are coming 
And at some point, probably in future, fund generations will have to work with the potential consequences of the climate crisis and build additional resilience there. And that's how we kind of identified this topic and subject of resilience for us. So what do you uh, offer? Because that's uh, always uh, often the, the question on the founder side, like, you know, you offer capital to, uh, to, 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 to the founders that you invest in, but uh, uh, what does you offer to them? Uh, I mean, and usually it's like based on the challenges that uh, you guys see uh, that are common to those uh, early stage uh, companies. Can you like uh, maybe uh, tell us a bit more about that? Of course. And thanks for asking. <laughs> um, so it, it's kind of twofold, right? So we need to, we are a co-investor. We're not a lead investor. We usually co-invest or co-lead with larger funds for a number of reasons. A, we like and prefer larger rounds, especially in the current climate, because larger rounds usually lead to um, longer runways, more possibility to experiment around the product and more possibility to create traction um, before the next round. And uh, so we like to invest into large rounds. And we also accept valuations that are accordingly, um, despite the current climate. And given that we are a co-investor, we want to be attractive both for the lead investor as well as for the founders, so that founders that like us don't have an issue getting us on the cap table, and large funds like to have us on. And they both like to have us on for a very specific skill and a, another specific attribute. Let's start with the attribute. We are an impact fund, which means that we know a lot about impact methodology. We have our own theory of change. We have our own impact framework. We help founders report in these impact frameworks and create the right impact outcome KPIs and output KPIs. And we really take them by the hand on this process and on this, on this journey. And that's where they need help. And a lot of the larger funds still don't have that muscle built out unless they are a very large climate tech fund, but the traditional funds don't have this muscle as much as, as we do, right? They're more ESG compliance driven, but not so much impact driven. So we offer that to both. And the specific skill that we bring lies a bit in my history. So what happened by kind of mistake became by design because the close to 30 years in working in marketing and sales and recognizing that marketing and sales is such a key lever in early stage investing, is what we apply and what we bring to the table. So a lot of the founders kind of see us as almost like an interim CMO and an interim CRO for as long as they haven't built that function if they don't come from that field. And we can really help them in building up their marketing and sales systems applicable to each phase. So within a pre-seed phase and a seed phase, there are different ways to structure your marketing and sales approaches that help you drive to that next phase and especially reach higher valuations because of earlier traction and just better driven KPIs. Let's face it, a Series A investor wants to invest into a well-oiled marketing and sales machine. And that's what we help founders get to in a very short amount of time. And there's a third element maybe that also lies within our LP structure. We deliberately um, scouted um, a, a network-based LP structure. So we don't have large family offices or uh, as such yet in our, in our LP structure. Where we are currently is it's a network where we've raised from C-level executives that are or have been in um, very responsible positions at large consumer goods companies, in the automotive industry, in the banking industry, uh, in the cosmetics industry, uh, in, in large industrial solutions, et cetera. And that means that for any type of solution that we invest into, we probably have a very corresponding network 
um, in the sea levels in the industry, which helps alleviate B2B collaborations, potential exit channels, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah? And that, that is very, very helpful uh, for, the, for the startups. And they like to address that network very fast. And we can um, offer them that in a, in a heartbeat because we also uh, deliberately told our LPs that that is the way that we want them involved. And uh, we offer that um, to the startup founders and, and it's being used very heavily, to be honest. So which sectors are the, the most promising for you today in terms of uh, impact cash return or ICR, as I call it? I mean, meaning building impactful companies while creating a highly profitable business. Any underdogs or subsectors uh, area that you're especially, I mean, excited about based on maybe on your last deep dive? Yeah. So uh, we're especially excited currently about the sustainability education space because that is a space that is a wide, it, it, it's, it encompasses some of the ed tech that we've traditionally looked at, but in that specific transformation, and it especially looks at that corporate upskilling piece. So that's where we feel there's going to be a lot coming through uh, in training apps, in um, uh, learning management system, in education management systems, uh, white label solutions for large corporates, white label solutions for um, the entire accounting industry, PWCs, et cetera, that are you know, staffing up uh, a lot of people. I think PwC issued 10,000 people that they want to staff up in the sustainability practice. You need to train these people very, very fast. So there's a huge development there that has just started. Um, the other, I would say, subsector that we feel kind of very bullish about is AI-driven materials. So where AI is being used to iterate very, very, very fast on the research um, of alternative materials, namely in single-use plastics, because that is one of the things that basically slows down the development. It's not so much then getting it into industrial scale, because those machines can be built quite easily. It's actually getting to these solutions that have the right properties for every one of these, um, of these material specifications and scopes. So with AI, of course, you can iterate much faster than R&D could do in the last 30 years. And that is one of the subsectors that we feel is extremely uh, exciting. Um, and that we're getting ourselves into. I think a third sector is this entire energy transformation piece where we're looking at, you know, biomethane and, and similar transportive mechanisms to uh, create lower cost energy for the very hard to electrify industries such as uh, shipping, et cetera, and the glass industry. So they still need those very, very clear solutions that help them uh, electrify at a lower pace or a lower price, I'm sorry, and uh, biomethane, hydrogen, et cetera, are, are the right solutions for those. And there are humongous markets, right? So <laughs> that's why ICR is given. On the uh, on the other side, I mean, what are you uh, not excited anymore? Or like, according to you, I mean, what are the solutions that, uh, in a way, um, you believe makes no sense whatsoever, or sounds like uh, there might be a, a waste of you know time or resource, or even greenwashing? Give uh, examples of like, you know, sectors that maybe you're not excited anymore, or you feel that uh, is not definitely something that you want to get in. Yeah, so I, I must say that. The entire, let's say, carbon accounting space is something that I feel is I, I, where I don't understand that still new companies are coming up because I feel that space is just going to be taken by the few that are there. And I don't feel the necessity to continue diversifying the market. I think that's quite an opportunistic 
uh, approach there that people are taking with building, you know, more sectoral pieces around, let's say, just the fashion industry or just the automotive industry, et cetera. Let's leave the space to the Persephone's and the sweeps, et cetera, of this world. These companies have gotten amazing funding. They're out there. Uh, they have the right people in place to create these software solutions. And I don't think it creates a hell of a lot of effort to transform it from one industry to the next. And I think you cannot catch up with the knowledge that these companies have built up in providing scope three emission accounting, et cetera. So I'd rather support these companies that already exist instead of investing into new ones. I feel this space is kind of by now strongly overheated. Um, I think what you could probably do in that space is build a meta platform at some point because probably the market will continue to diversify and at some point it will consolidate as with a lot of markets. So that that's something where I feel it's it's kind of, yeah, not outdated, that would be the wrong word, but something that I, I feel is just over overheated by now. Yeah. Um, is there another space that I don't feel so strong about anymore or that is greenwashing? Uh, to be honest, not really. Um, I, I see greenwashing. <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of greenwashing in the <laughs> in the industrial parts, right? So rather with corporates that are kind of adopting, let's say, carbon accounting, and now that they know how to measure their carbon, they will then kind of say that we're measuring and therefore we're green. But that's complete BS, as we all know, right? So we need to continue investing into those. Um, I, I think one of the issues that I rather see is we're not clear about impact. Impact is something, is a word that is that still needs a lot of definition and still needs a lot of clarity. So sometimes I see companies out there that are claiming to be impactful, but basically they're just doing the right thing and they don't measure their impact and they're not clear about the impact that they want and will achieve. And that to me sometimes feels like green or social washing because they kind of say, hey, we, I don't know, uh, you know, provide a better way to consume or we are fostering. Uh, I, I had a food, a food company the other day that we looked at and they were kind of producing a different types of, of baked good. I'm not saying that that's wrong because the baked good that they provided was um, they could they they packaged it up in recycled plastic, not in biodegradable material yet, and that baked good was meant to hold longer than your usual toast bread that you have in your in your in your box. So it holds for like thirty to forty five days, and it's very natural. It's very tasty. Yes, it tasted good, but selling that as an impact company, I find very very hard because a are you really going to change the habit of people going to the bakery in Europe? B go into the shelf uh, in a supermarket and look at how many products are there that are already packaged, et cetera, et cetera, and see if your packaging is not even biodegradable. Um, like, are you really, and you're decentralizing your production, are you really going to have that impact on, on the world? Or are you just trying to put the impact label on the company to sell that product, right? And, that's, and, and you're taking advantage of a consumption habit or consumption trend that's coming up. And, and that's where I feel we need to really watch out to not use the cause of impact to produce commercially viable models um, while not really being clear about the impact we're producing directly.
So do, do you have like a specific criteria that you guys are using or framework or do you rely on like, uh, you know, science, scientists or advisors that uh, help you to, to understand this impact uh, part? Both. So we uh, have an impact framework that we've uh, built up ourselves. So there's a theory of change at the heart of it. And then uh, the impact management project has been a guiding principle as much as the planetary boundaries have been. We use IRS Plus as an accounting framework to measure the KPIs. And in our due diligence, we do our first assessment ourselves in the investment team. And then we have a team from Fineo, which is one of the impact investing, I would say, leading consultancies in Germany. Uh, Andreas, the head of Fineo, is also on our board. And uh, they then do a deeper due diligence on the impact theory that we've set up uh, for the startup before we take the final investment decision. So what's next for, uh, for P Capital? Well, you know, we're a young fund, so we're still fundraising. Um, so any LPs that watch this, please call me uh, if you're a cool person and want to invest in, in a great fund. Uh, we will be announcing uh, some exciting news in the next few weeks uh, around around uh, closings, etc. So we're in the process of getting there. It's been a, it's been a nice journey uh, to date, and it's cool talking to all these uh, very impact driven LPs that want to join the journey. But we're not done with fundraising just yet, so that's what's next. Um, otherwise. We are uh, in exciting deals that uh, can be announced very soon as well. So that's uh, news to come in the next few weeks. Exciting. So what's your, uh, that's always uh, the question that I ask to uh, every guest on the show. Uh, what's your personal on the, uh, view on the, on the climate crisis? I mean, uh, what would you say to, to the people who feel demoralized by, uh, you know, seeing all of uh, the already visible consequences, uh, you know, of uh, climate change uh, today? Are we doomed? Let me quote somebody and tell you a bit of a story. I was at a at a dinner the other day in London with Sir David King. And Sir David King is the lead climate scientist at Cambridge University. He's a gentleman in his 80s, doesn't look it at all, doesn't act like it at all. He seems more like a, a child still playing around with his toys. Um, and, the, and he has a magic way of speaking about all the possibilities and, and the solutions that are out there and that they're building as well, which is... Fascinating, by the way. But he said one thing, and this was a circle of like private equity investors and, and private individuals and ultra high net worth individuals sitting around the table. He said, ladies and gentlemen, the next five years are decisive for the next 2000 years of humanity. Man, I was sitting there like my heart was racing. I, I have goosebumps when I tell you, right? So it was like, I, I didn't know whether to shit in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, breaking out of sweat, starting to cry, or feeling amazingly motivated to just continue and, and give this full steam. And of course, I, I then tend to the latter um, because I, I feel, you know, I'm an optimistic person. And if you look at the history of humanity, we have always used every crisis that has happened to speed up our our velocity of innovation and to get our asses moving if you allow me to be a bit French here and um and that's what I'm 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 clear will happen here and that's why I bet on capitalistic forces because capitalism positive capitalism I think will drive the motivation of people will drive the motivation of industries will drive the motivation of investment sectors and it is also what's driving great people to found these companies because they realize we need to do it and it's commercially viable 
to do it. So this will not only be for the greater good, but it will also be for, for a, let's say, a personal reward in investing your life in this generation. Um, and, you know, being in this bubble, I would say, I only speak to extremely clever people that are doing their best and speeding up as much as they can and have energy and enthusiasm and are ready to put their all into this to make it happen. And this is the most intelligent people on the planet, right? So if they can't solve it, then yes, we're doomed. But um, I don't think we are. I think we'll get there. We'll have to transform, that's for sure. But we'll get there. Any question I should have uh, asked you and did not for this uh, first part of the interview? No, man. I think you've been very good. Thank you so much, uh, Xavier, for your time, your incredible uh, insights and wisdom. Uh, I'm so excited to see uh, so many brilliant people like you uh, putting so much time, effort, and resource into uh, supporting uh, founders, but also uh, you know moving the ball towards a, a better world. So thank you so much for coming with us. Thank you, Guillaume. It's a pleasure. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech for Climate podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. And see you next time.